The Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with Inside Pharma with our co-host, Hedley Reese from the UK. And we are focusing today on what is going on in the United Kingdom and why is that so important for the rest of the world. With us today, we are honored to have Member of Parliament, Andrew Bridgen. He is for the Northwest of Leicestershire in England since 2010. And many of you may have heard Mr. Bridgen's fiery speeches on the floor of Parliament sometimes when his colleagues have been so rude, they've walked out but he has been calling out the crimes and the fraud of big pharma and the failures of the British regulatory agency, medical MHRA. And that is critical because it is, it is the hotbed of where so much of this has started as my co-host Hedley Reese is going to explain. But, Andrew Bridgen has, you can tell that he's right over the target and that his fiery, passionate, courageous speeches are hitting the target like word bombs because, and they are word bombs of truth because he has now had the distinctive honor of being expelled by the conservative party after he compared the COVID-19 vaccines to the Holocaust. And actually they're worse than the Holocaust because they've killed orders of magnitude more people than the Nazis did in World War II and has been found to breach the lobbying rules. Also, he was expelled by the Tories who stripped him of his party membership as well. And you know, you can tell a man of courage when he says, this just confirms the corruption, collusion, and cover-up. So I am honored to have him on our whistleblower report today. He has definitely been a courageous and truthful whistleblower. And Headley, let's talk about the urgency of having America and the world focus on why the UK and what's going on there is so critical for the rest of us to understand. Thank you for being with us today, both of you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Lee. Yeah, 
listeners may remember that we've constantly highlighted the UK as the epicenter, the nerve center, the test bed for the approval of the SARS-CoV-2 injections. Um, we know that the chair of the vaccine task force was Sir Richard Sykes, former um, CEO of Glaxo and GlaxoSmithKline. We also know that the cell and gene therapy catapult in the UK have a, have a, a mission to grow gene therapies in the, in, in the UK. And we also know that the MHRA has um, uh, empowered or um, uh, supported the pharmaceutical industry in approving these vaccines, uh, I should call them injections. So I, I don't want to waste uh, too much time because we want to listen to Andrew here, but please take note that this is an opportunity to actually call out one uh, regulatory body that is not doing its job, it's failing on its responsibilities. And if we can uh, get this done for the MHRA, that could have a real domino effect. So Andrew, thanks so much for being here and we're looking forward to chatting. Um, well, this week I've written to Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister. Um, two weeks ago, I'd written to uh, Victoria Prentice, the Attorney General, um, with evidence that was supplied to me by uh, Dr. Josh, Joshua Gutzko of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He'd analysed all the Pfizer data and come to the conclusion that they'd uh, effectively done a... Uh, bait and switch with the vaccines. So they'd tested a vaccine on 44,000 people, used those results to get approval in the UK and around the world. But what was clear from the evidence that I received from uh, Josh was that the vaccine that was rolled out around the world was not the same vaccine by Pfizer that, that had gone through the tests. Um, and the, the smoking gun for that was the fact that in the UK, the day the vaccines were rolled out at the vaccine centres, there was no waiting time for anaphylaxis. But on day two of the vaccine rollout in the UK, uh, the MHRA and the Department of Health changed the, uh, the format and said that everyone had got to remain at the vaccine centre for 15 minutes in case of anaphylaxic reaction. And that... Uh, because we know that anaphylaxis comes from uh, endotoxins in the vaccine and endotoxins in the vaccine come from culturing the vaccine in, uh, in a bacteria such as Escherichia coli. And what we know is that the, the vaccine that Pfizer tested on 44,000 people wasn't manufactured in that way. This raises very serious questions. Um, Clearly, the MHRA must have known because they changed the protocol and asked people to remain at the vaccine centre. Now, under UK law, if the MHRA were aware of this and didn't make the ministers aware, that is a criminal offence punishable by up to two years in prison and unlimited fines. Um, if they did tell the ministers um, that the vaccines were not the same, um, that is equally serious because clearly ministers were going out and saying that you can take the Pfizer vaccine with confidence because it is tested um, safe and effective when there was no such evidence because it wasn't the same vaccine that had been tested. So 
what is what can't be in doubt from the evidence I've seen is that there could have been no informed consent in the UK or around the world for the Pfizer vaccine um, because it hadn't been tested and people weren't made aware of it. People were misled. So there can be have been no informed consent. Uh, so the government now in receipt of, I think it's 44 pages of evidence submitted with my letter to Rishi Sunak, calling on him to recall Parliament so we can debate this during the summer holiday before any further harm is done, is, is very, very significant. But I'm not holding my breath that the Prime Minister will acquiesce to my reasonable demands that we debate this important issue, which potentially affects billions of people around the world. Well, it absolutely does. And that is shocking that this is not front page news worldwide. And that I did, goes I did to your point it, of cover up. I did supply it to all media outlets in the UK uh, and nobody wished to pick up the story, which is um, pretty much normal, quite honestly, for anything to do with, with the vaccines. Well, the, the cover up and collusion has been orchestrated from the beginning and much of the culpability for that falls on the US and the Department of Defense developing this as a prototype, which has come out in court cases here. And I know you're familiar with that, but the fact that there is now more evidence in the UK that they actually switched the gene therapy shots, I, I medically refuse to call them vaccines, but that they, they refuse, refuse to acknowledge whether it was Pfizer hiding it, MHRA hiding it, or the ministers hiding it, all of them are well, guilty the, of the, these the MHRA, the MHRA must have known because they knew that by changing that protocol, they knew there was a, there was a risk of access. So that, that showed that they knew it had been cultured in bacteria, um, which clearly the, the, the test batches uh, that, that Pfizer used for their trials weren't. So they knew. There's, there's no way they didn't know. The only question is, did they, did they tell the minister? Um, and we'll, I'm, I'm trying to get that answer out of the government. It's a very straightforward question. Did the MHRA inform you of these facts? It's a little bit like, for the public though, it's a little bit like going into a car showroom and being shown a a car in the, in, in the showroom and, and looking all around it, looking at all the gadgets and thinking, yes, I'll have one of these. And when you sign on the line, being told that that isn't actually the car you've bought, you, you, yours is out the back, you haven't seen it. And unfortunately, it's got no wheels on it. That's exactly right. Or it has an engine ready to explode. There's a yes. bomb in the engine. No, no seatbelts. <laughs> right. This is what the crimes that, that have been uncovered in, in the U.S. with whistleblowers and around the world with the whistleblowers, the contamination, the violation of manufacturing practices that Headley has been tirelessly working to expose are absolutely staggering as an assault on humanity and life. It, it is beyond our comprehension as normal people with a conscience that people can Malevolent minds can design something so heinous and known weapon. Dr. Yeadon has used the term correctly, toxic by design. They knew the toxicity 
of this design years, 20 years before the rollout of these gene therapy shots. And Headley, I, I think speaking to all that you've done on the violation of and waiver and just ignoring good manufacturing practices, how does that tie into this switch that from what was tested to what was delivered to the public? Yeah, well, there's a mantra in the industry, well known, that the process is the product. These uh, biologics are so sensitive to temperature, even to the vessel that they mixed in and the tubing that joins it up, anything can change its clinical effect. So whenever you change the process, <clears throat> you have to ensure that it's still clinically equivalent. And you also have to redo the animal uh, studies in the animal models to ensure that new process is still safe. And so this isn't, the, 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 it's broader than this as well, because you cannot mix and match a Pfizer and a Moderna vaccine, because unless you've done bioequivalent studies, you've got to prove they are clinically equivalent. And this is why there are so few, what they call biosimilars coming to market, which are like generic biologics, because it's incredibly difficult to prove this interchangeability. So the whole mix and match that went on over the world with the different vaccines, the AstraZeneca, the Moderna and the Pfizer was absolutely counter to all the regulations for biologics. So what Andrew's highlighting here is the thin edge of a huge wedge. And you've got to get that thin edge and say, look, this is the evidence that says they've changed the process, but they've not done any more safety studies, and it was a different cadre of, 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 of patients on the study. So uh, it's, um, it, this is hard to believe. If, and people have spent a long time in this industry. They know what's going on. So, um, Well, one uh, of the things that, that bothered me as a physician early on there, there were there were some major clues because I, what uh, Andrew you may not know, I actually was starting to write national editorials and speak out in the media about what was going on in March of 2020 because as physicians in the United States we were prevented from we were threatened with loss of our license for prescribing hydroxychloroquine. That was before we knew about ivermectin because that came later. But I, I came out swinging on a lot of that and was writing editorials about the cover-up, the suppression of early treatment, the fact that these were known as effective antivirals against SARS-CoV-1 from 2003 to 2005 and published in 2005. And so there were several red flags. Number one, that there was a coordinated campaign from all 50 licensing boards in the United States directing physicians not to prescribe hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. Never have we had that in my entire career in medicine. That was red flag, huge red flag, number one. But number two was when the head of our um, FDA and some of the administrative agents under him Rick Bright, director of BARDA, actually 
restricted the use of hydroxychloroquine to hospitalized patients only and on a clinical trial. Again, that had never been done. And that was counter 180 degrees from what President Trump had ordered to make hydroxychloroquine from the national stockpile available to the public doctors and hospitals. So that, that was huge. And we exposed that by April that's, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. That's interesting because I looked at the, uh, some scientific papers. My, by the way, my degree is in uh, a long time ago uh, from Nottingham University is in biological sciences with subsidiary in biochemistry. And oh, I good for you. <laughs> I specialized in genetics, virology and um, behavior, um, which just Very to... interesting. <laughs> I, th I think I was meant to be where I am at the moment. Um, yes, anyway, you are. I, I, I was sent the uh, some papers uh, showing pretty good efficacy for hydroxychloroquine in February 2020, and I sent them on to the government uh, to the chief whip, and I also sent them to the chair of the Health Select Committee, who was Jeremy Hunt at the time, who's now the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and I followed up. I get nothing back from the government. But I followed up with Jeremy on a phone call and um, you know, he's, he'd been the health secretary for seven years uh, and then he was chair of the health select committee. And I said, Jeremy, I've sent you these papers on hydroxychloroquine. The efficacy looks good. I think this could be really useful and we need to you know, have a look at this seriously. And um, Dr. Lee, he turned around to me he was on the phone and he said, Andrew, do not send me scientific papers. I just don't understand them. What? That's what he said to me on the phone. Don't bother sending me scientific pain. I mean, he only, oh ran the health, he only ran the health service for seven years and was chair of the health select committee, but he doesn't understand scientific papers and he clearly doesn't have access to anyone who can explain them to him either. Oh, my. Uh, that's just that's just mind boggling. Well, Andrew, it was Anthony Fauci's own Journal of Virology and his agency at NIH that published the studies of chloroquine and its sister drug hydroxychloroquine in the Journal of Virology from the NIH in 2005, showing all and, the uh, And I think Chris Whitty, Chris Whitty, uh, the health advisor to the government, uh, he he wrote, I believe he wrote a paper at Oxford University in 2010 about the efficacy uh, of ivermectin, yet we didn't use it. Well, exactly. And it wasn't until doctors in Brazil that we were networked with started reporting on using ivermectin for COVID-19 in April of 2020. Well, what happened in May of 2020 Fauci and the and Burks and the people in the U.S. started talking about we have we are going to have a vaccine. There's no need for early treatment. We're going to have a vaccine by December. And at, from that moment on, the persecution of doctors trying to prescribe early treatment, outpatient, and prevent hospitalization and death escalated and everyone and the media suppressed and demonized all of the medicines 
that treated people successfully outpatient and Fauci based on the flawed trial and changed endpoints in the clinical trial of remdesivir, they ordered that as the covered countermeasure for inpatient hospital treatment and suppressed again and, and, and fired doctors who tried to prescribe anything other than and if we look, if we look at when, what went on in sub-Saharan Africa, where there's wide use of hydroxychloroquine uh, and ivermectin due to uh, incidences of combating malaria and um, and and river fever, um, you know some of those countries only had, I think Nigeria only had one or two percent vaccination rates, yet their death rates were minute compared to uh, um, Europe and uh, North America. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it, it, uh, it, it doesn't take a, de a degree in science to work that one out. And of course, you, you use remdesivir uh, as a treatment. Um, they did that the same in Europe, but in the UK, uh, the preferred mode uh, was midazolam, which is uh, midazolam and morphine, for, which is a respiratory suppressant for people who are already suffering potential respiratory su suppression. And uh, that was NG, NICE guideline, NG163. And quite honestly, that was a death sentence for um, elderly, vulnerable patients. Oh, it absolutely was. We, we have done well, you, so I think much you use, work. You use midazolam. We, um, some of your states use midazolam in America for, uh, it's a death row drug for uh, lethal oh, injection. Oh, we, oh, absolutely. Um, uh, the, the combination that was part of the COVID death protocol that I've been writing about, and we were, we were actually trying to rescue people trapped in hospitals. Our medical team was, and medical team and lawyers were heavily involved trying to rescue people trapped in the hospitals, given that COVID death protocol. And I called it um, in one of my editorials, Biden's bounty on your life, because they were paying hospitals mass hundreds of thousands of dollars in incentives to use only midazolam, morphine, fentanyl, and other sedatives to ostensibly sedate the patients who were agitated. Well, they were agitated because they, were, they couldn't breathe and they gave them drugs that suppressed respiration and breathing. So you're right, it was a death and they were getting And they were getting nil by mouth, so no water, no food, no sustenance. So, I mean, exactly. you've, got hours, you've got hours to live. and. Um, some people in the UK were given so much midazolam. I mean, it would have taken down an elephant. You know, it's unbelievable uh, what's gone on. Well, um, it I was designed to kill we're, people. We're going to have to we're going to have to dig another deeper pit in hell to accommodate these people when they're brought to justice. Quite honestly. Yes. What are the and the question is: Will they only see God's judgment, which is clearly coming? but will we be able to achieve justice in this world? And the question is, where do some of the activities stand in the legal system and courts in the UK? And are there any initiatives that might stand a chance of bringing justice in this world for these crimes? Well, I can only tell you, I'll tell you what, um, I first spoke out in sort of the end of October in a debate um, about the vaccine efficacy and safety. I then was I really spoke out in on the 13th of December when the MHRA again decided they wanted to 
approve um, the experimental jabs for babies down to six months. Uh, no one under five had had any. That no, no, no children should have had them at all. There was no risk uh, comparable with the the the, uh, the 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 risk from the vaccines. Um, and in early January, um, I was uh, suspended by the party before they threw me out. And I was told by a very senior person in the party, there's only me and him, so um, you'll have to take my word for it, but I'll tell you word for word what he said to me. And he said, um, Andrew, there is currently no appetite for your views on the vaccines. There may well be in 20 years time and you're probably going to be proven right. But in the meantime, you need to be aware that you're, through your actions, you're taking on the most powerful vested interest in the world with all the personal risk for you that that entails. Well, and he's, he's exactly right. I don't respond well to threats like that. And people have said, you know, why were you willing to sacrifice your political career on the hill of, of vaccine harms? Well, Dr. Lee, that's the hill they're killing my people on. Exactly right. Exactly right. And if we don't have the courage to do what's right before God and our fellow man and stand up and speak this truth and try and do something to stop the killing, then we are as guilty as they are. I feel very strongly about that. And I, I applaud your efforts. He's right. It was at great personal risk and, and professional well, risk the, as the well. Government, the, government, the government have dismissed me as a conspiracy theorist, but it's very interesting. They were being asked to approve the experimental jabs for babies down to six months in the UK. I spoke out on the 13th of December. They dismissed my speech as, as, as irrelevant, but they never dared bring authorise those jabs for babies in the UK. And on the 17th of March, I spoke again about the lack of efficacy and safety of the booster rollout and the cost and how many people were needed from the government's own figures when the number needed to vaccinate to keep one person out of hospital. And I think it was in the healthy 40 to 49 year olds, it was 934,000 people had to be vaccinated just to keep stop one person from presenting at hospital. Well, there's and, and at one in 800 serious adverse events, you're putting 1,100 people risking death or serious harm, reporting at hospital to keep one person from presenting with COVID. And I presented all that. And again, that was dismissed as conspiracy theories. But all I ever quoted were the government's own figures, which they'd had for months and not released. And what happened two weeks after that is the government then decided having dismissed me as a conspiracy theorist, that only over 75s and the immunosuppressed should have the boosters. So, 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 you are so I, I did have a massive effect on the policy in the UK. You did. And had you remained silent, they would have gone ahead. And of so- Of course, and that, that, has, that will have saved lives. That will have saved a lot of lives and a lot of children's lives. Exactly right. This is, that number needed to treat in order to prevent one hospitalization is staggering. Never in the history of medicine in the modern era has there been well, anything on the, like Dr. that. Lee, Dr. Lee, in the UK on the younger age groups, the government-owned figures were, were pointing at a cost of, of going towards 10 million pounds just to stop one person presenting at hospital. They not would never approve that. No, no, not, that, that. The government figures are there. I can 
I, I'm quite happy to send them to you. Uh, if you give me your email after this program, I'll send you all the data that I quoted and I can send you my speech from Hansard on the, uh, and it's, it, it's, um, it's all there. They, they couldn't argue against it. They just said it conspiracy theorists, but then they let's, changed the policy. Let's do that because we will post the links to your speech, those speeches especially. I'll, I'll, I'll send you those two speeches. Uh, and I want to people to hear and the that. Data, and the data from the, yes. uh, the UK's own, own, own government. And the interesting thing was they had that data about how ineffective the boosters were uh, since the 28th of October, they, they didn't release it until the 28th or 26th of January. So the MHRA knew, knew, uh, sorry, the, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation in the UK knew that these weren't effective. Why didn't they intervene? Why did I have to intervene with the MHRA to stop them vaccinating small children when they already knew it would have been Millions and millions and millions would have needed to have been vaccinated uh, for no effect whatsoever, no benefit for the child and a huge risk from the vaccine harms. Why did I have to do it? They knew they had the data. Exactly right. And let's talk about the question but you just asked after the break. How compromised our regulators are. 84% of the funding for the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Product Regulatory Agency in the UK, 84% of their funding comes from Big Pharma. So exactly. And the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, these wise, wise experts who advise the government, they declared over a billion pounds of personal interest and investments in Big Pharma. They're all compromised. They've captured all our regulators. Exactly right. Regulatory capture has been a huge theme of what we've been talking about. Let's take a break and we'll come back. And I want to address I want to have Headley address part of that question about why did you have to, to bring this data to their attention? This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report, Inside Pharma, exposing the black box of the lies and deception of big pharma that is costing lives and livelihoods and freedom around the world. Check out our website at www.truthforhealth.org and listen to all of our whistleblower reports at www.whistleblowerreports.org or on your favorite channel on your music streaming and internet access to programming, Spotify, iHeart, Apple iTunes, Pandora, and others. We'll be right back after the break. Hello, everyone. This is Lieutenant Mark Bashaw, U.S. Army and legal grant recipient of the Truth for Health Foundation. I want to give a huge shout out to the Truth for Health Foundation for helping me and my family over the past year with our legal battles. Recently, I was court-martialed for not participating with these experimental COVID-19 emergency use authorized products. If it wasn't for Truth for Health Foundation and all the support, I would definitely be in a worse spot. But because of all the support, I'm able to continue uniform service, fighting for what's right to protect the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. God bless each and every one of you, and God bless America. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report. Inside Pharma with my co-host from the UK, Hedley Reese, 
And our guest today, Member of Parliament, Andrew Bridgen, who many of you may have heard on social media from his fiery speeches before the Parliament in the UK exposing the deceptions, fraud, crimes, and cover-up of Big Pharma and the MHRA in the UK. And the fact that this latest bombshell that Pfizer tested one gene therapy injection product and then sent a different product to the public for the ostensible COVID-19 shots. So different product, not tested, no informed consent, same problem we've seen in the United States and the mixing and matching of the different pharmaceutical companies' COVID shots means that essentially they're all covering up each other's damage from their contaminated and poorly made products that have been unleashed on humanity. Well, right before the break, Andrew Bridgen was raising the question, why did I have to be the one to bring the government's own data to the attention of Parliament and the MHRA? Well, I think Hedley Reese has an interesting answer to that when we look at where the control of mRNA, MHRA in the UK has come to be discovered. Uh, Hedley, why don't you address who really seems to run the MHRA in addition to the funding that comes from Big Pharma, which Mr. Bridgen just talked about, 84% of the MHRA funding comes from Big Pharma, but there are other players behind the scenes. Tell us more about that. Okay, yes, well, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation now employs and has done since 2019 the chief the former CEO of the MHRA, Dr. Ian Hudson. He was also a very senior person on various committees at the European Medicines Agency. And uh, four years before he left, joined Bill and Melinda Gates, he set up a duplicate organization called the International Coalition for Medicines Regulatory Authorities, which basically has gone into all the global regulatory authorities and started to hollow them out. And we know the MHRA is probably the most hollow of them all. It's basically just a shell organization now. The people that I knew that used to work there when I chaired a conference in Cincinnati, 2010 to 2014, they've all left. And what we've left are people without the skills to evaluate new drugs. Um, in 1995, evaluation of drugs moved from MHRA to the European Medicines Agency when it was located in Canary Wharf. So MHRA lost the skills to evaluate new drugs. It was all centralized under the European Medicines Agency. So those people were never replaced. So the MHRA, it can be proved absolutely, does not have people that can do the drug metabolism, the pharmacokinetics work, the toxicology work, the work on immunogenicity, all the skills you need to evaluate a drug, they don't have. So you have to ask the question, how were they able to approve all these drugs? They've been first to approve every one of these drugs, and then it's gone in lockstep with all the other countries. So, um, and it's so, it's, I attended a, 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 a good distribution practice 
NHRA symposium about three months ago uh, that UK column uh, kindly helped me to get on to by fi financing the, because they charge for everything. So, you know, they, that was a huge symposium and they are charging, and that's the thing they are charging for people to get scientific advice. So it's become like a business. So what I heard on that symposium, I recorded parts of it. It's horrific. They admitted that they weren't, uh, they were doing what they call shipping under quarantine, which means they were shipping the goods before they'd been tested. And um, they were using AI, they were using Microsoft uh, HoloLens 2 to do the virtual inspections. Now, virtual inspections are about as useful as a chocolate teapot. You know, it's, uh, you just don't get an idea of what's happening in the nooks and crannies. They were just being shown the places that the companies, the facilities making the drugs wanted them to see. And they are still intent on continuing with, with virtual inspections. But if you look at, there've been some FDA inspections that have actually gone into two companies making, one making the Moderna uh, drug product, uh, Catlin Pharma Solutions, that was a horrible result. MH, FDA really said there was no control in the facility and they were shipping goods, even though knowing they were reject, rejects. And the other company is Rentschler Pharma in uh, Germany. And again, that was a very bad result of the inspection. And this is public domain. FDA put what they call a form 483, which is a record of the inspection, all the observations on, on their internet site. So you can see them. And those both those sites should have been closed down instantly while remediation work, if that were possible, were to go on. So people don't know this. And you know, when the MHRA use, holds this board meeting, in public, it's almost a, a joke. The people there haven't got a clue of what they're talking about. And I, I had um, a letter on the weekend from Dr. Laura Squire, who was in charge of just about everything there. I'd asked a question on point of care manufacturing, because what they've done is changed the reg their regulation to allow hospital pharmacies to manufacturing inverted commas, the, the mRNA injections and other gene therapies. That's unbelievably dangerous. No quality system. Uh, I asked Ian Reese before he left, who was in charge of strategy innovation, who, what quality system is going to be used? And he said, oh, it's, it's, it's the Care Quality Commission. Well, they wouldn't have a clue. I don't even know if they know it's supposed to be them. So, uh, you know, and th that's why I'm so glad that Andrew's on here now and really given the voice that needs to be out there of people uh, who can help him in bringing, you know, these injections down. So that's what I'd say, Dr. Lee. It, it's truly, it, it's so staggering to see the enormity of the failures in the entire manufacturing and distribution and oversight system Mr. Bridgen, what are the Andrew? Um, please. <laughs> Andrew, I'm, what are the um, what are the further implication for in, in your mind of of this announcement that the UK has now cemented a ten year partnership with Moderna in a major boost for vaccines and research? That's the news headline, and we just heard Henley Reese say 
that Moderna's inspections have been abysmal to the extent they've been done, which has not been adequate. And Moderna has had other problems that have been exposed in recent headlines. What, what, is, what is your take on why this big announcement about this 10-year partnership? Well, um, it's, it's all a bit stinky, quite honestly, Dr. Lee. So um, what do we know? We know that uh, the current prime minister, Rishi Sunak, was a founding partner of an offshore uh, tax-exempt trust in the Cayman Islands called Thelema, and uh, they invested £500 million in a company, I think it was in 2016, uh, or maybe a bit before, called Moderna. Oh. And uh, for which Rishi Sunak, as Prime Minister of the UK, to give these open-ended contracts for, uh, I'm told it's 150 million doses of mRNA vaccines from Moderna a year for 10 years. And of course, they've got similar contracts in Canada, Australia, New Zealand. I think it's appalling. Um, and it's so blatant. Uh, it's, it just smacks of corruption. And um, what do we want these vaccines for? It's, it's unproven technology. The rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines has been a disaster. Uh, and we've signed up with contracts that we won't be able to get out of, the taxpayer won't be able to get out of. And um, it looks like a huge conflict of interest for the prime minister, personally. Is there any expose of that in the UK other uh, bits, than what you're bits bringing of it, to bits light? Of it, bit, bits of it have, have, come, have come out, um, but those are the facts as I understand it, and they're not pretty, are they? No, they, they, they are horrific, uh, they, they, actually. I mean, I mean, it, it's, 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 obviously, it's not quite as bad as some of the things that the Biden family have been up to, but it's, it's pretty close. We're trying. It's deeply disappointing, um, you know, I came into Parliament um, over 13 years ago, 2010, um, and I thought, you know, that I would be doing good things for my constituents and the country. And I've spent most of my time while I've been in Parliament stopping bad things, trying to stop bad things happening, most of them inflicted by my, my own government, which uh, people will say doing good or stopping bad is, is the same, but spending your time stopping bad is not as fulfilling as doing good, is it? Uh, but that's what I've ended up doing. And I, I, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed with the whole system. We used to have a government, I thought, that, that legislated to make life better for the people. And over the last three or four years, we seem to have turned around the world into governments that inflict laws upon the people rather than bringing laws in for the benefits of the public. And uh, I think we've got a crisis of democracy, accountability. And what we've also seen is every regulatory agency and institution set to protect the public, they have failed over the last three years abysmally. And we need a full public inquiry in the UK into the vaccine efficacy and safety, how the contracts were awarded. There's massive fraud all around this from the PPE to the track and trace to the vaccines themselves. Um, and the big loser all the time is, is the people. And uh, we can't carry on like this, quite honestly. Um, the people need to stand up and say enough is enough. It, that is extremely well said. And, and it is true because I've been watching the same thing happen 
in this country and in other countries where I've well, traveled and isn't, lived it, isn't, it, isn't it interesting? You know, they'll say this, you're just a conspiracy theory, but you've got the same bad things happening in all the democracies all around the world at the same time on the same issues. Um, in a coordinated I mean, way. In a coordinated way. Media. And, and we, we had an idiot uh, in charge of our health department during the, uh, the, during the pandemic response, the first part. Um, called Matt Hancock, a guy I'm taking to court, actually, who defamed me. Uh, so, um, but, but, I mean, he was an idiot. I mean, he's an idiot. But every other country didn't have Matt Hancock running their health services, but they all, they all made the same fundamental mistakes. Uh, it's unbelievable. Actually, it, we are being too gentle with them, calling it a mistake or that it was stupidity. It was right. a malevolent orchestrated design intended toward the goal of depopulation that has been a hundred year plan that began in the UK and America in the 1900s. And we know that with the eugenics movement, we know all of the steps. I've, I've done a timeline on the depopulation agenda. And this was all orchestrated towards that goal. They knew- it's, it's interesting. I, um, if you'll indulge me, I had a, I spoke at a rally in Trafalgar Square in the middle of London uh, a few months ago, and I had a then a, a, a taxi was arranged to take me from there to a TV studio to do an interview, um, and the taxi driver recognised me and he followed me on social media, and as we went towards the TV studio in North London, he said that uh, he told me a story about his grandfather who had been a batman, uh, a soldier servant for a general in the First World War in the British Army. And of course, because the general and his house is, is batman, they weren't on the front line, they survived. So his grandfather survived the First World War. And after the war, he became, the general was Lord somebody or other, had a big house in Mayfair, which is the most expensive part of London. And he was his butler. His grandfather became the butler. And he didn't live at the big house. He had his own house on the Edgware Road. And we went by it. And he said, that was my grandfather's house. He said, and uh, he had four children, but he registered all the births. He said, not in that street, because that was a poor street. He registered the births in the street over there, which was a better street, a wealthier street. And I said, well, why did he do that? He said, he said, because he knew that the doctors vaccinated. This is in just after the first war. So after uh, 1918, he said the doctors vaccinated the uh, children from the poor areas and they died. Wow. That's Isn't what that, that that's, that, that, that's, that's what the taxi driver told me about his grandfather. So, it, and, and it has been going on for a long time. We know that actually in the 1960s, they were actually doing extensive research in this country and perhaps the UK. And well, I, I did another, I'm just completing, uh, which will hopefully be going out next week. Uh, a mini documentary about thalidomide, the the untold story. Oh yes, yes. Well, I think America was 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 spared thalidomide. You hadn't approved it, but it was approved for Europe and for Australia. And terrible. Um, it was a, a, a it was a a, um, a medicine for um, for vomiting, um, for headaches, and for various other ailments. Morning sickness. It was prescribed for, but the, uh, the medicine not only went around the pregnant woman's body, it also crossed the placenta barrier, went to the unborn uh, baby and uh, and led to um, 
angiogenesis, which is the failure, well, the, it stops the formation of blood vessels. So depending on the time of gestation, when the mother took the thalidomide medicine, um, arms or legs didn't develop. 40% of the babies died. 60% were left with terrible, terrible injuries. And eventually this all got stopped, but it was for many, many years it went on for. And the, the German company who'd made thalidomide were called Chemigrunathan. I've done some research. They recruited ex-Nazi scientists at the end of the war into their, in fact, their head of research was an ex-Nazi called um, Heinrich Mulke. Uh, and he was head of research and developed thalidomide. And when it all came out, what it had done in the UK they, they, and, and around the world, they, uh, they set up a fund for a compensation and negotiated international immunity from prosecution. Does that sound familiar? Does that yes. sound familiar? Yes. And the shocking thing is that we found out through papers that they'd given thalidomide out to their own staff for free before it was marketed to the world. And they'd had birth defects uh, amongst their own staff members and the partners of staff. Indeed, uh, the, the wife of an employee who bought the drug home before it was marketed gave birth to a baby with no ears and they, they kept all that quiet. And the most shocking thing, which I don't have a vocabulary to say how bad these people were, is after it had all been exposed in the UK and they got immunity, Kemi Grunethal changed the name of thalidomide to Sofenon and sold it into Spain for 25 years until the mid 80s, doing exactly the same damage to exactly the same people. There are 400 Spaniards still alive who are suffering, who are thalidomide babies. Uh, and they did that after, after it was all come out, they changed the name and carried on selling it with immunity. That is unbelievable. And interestingly, I also found the papers, got the papers from the Strasbourg Court of Human Rights in, in Europe. And three judges there judged and ruled that the Speaker of the House of Commons at the time, in our parliament had suppressed debate and questions on thalidomide for years. Well, if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes, aren't we? And you are, you are right about that. I remember the thalidomide at the very beginning of my interest in medicine. And, and it, uh, and it was a, midw a midwife in Australia who really set the uncovering it. And she 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 joined the dots, and the the that was the one time over my medical career that I can recall the FDA really did its job and stopped the approval of the drug here because of the signals of risk overseas. But that has not been the case in many other situations since then, and in fact, our FDA is uh, another regulatory capture essentially owned by big pharma and the political agenda. You mentioned the corruption in the Biden administration. I mean, that is so uh, enormous as in, in treason against America that it's hard to comprehend that members of both parties in the United States are allowing that to continue unchecked. But and the same, all... thing, the same thing, same thing. There's no opposition here. The the opposition parties don't want to talk about excess deaths. They don't want to talk about vaccine harms. Democracy is finished in the UK at the moment. There is no democracy. Well, the democracy is actually mob rule. 
and the tyranny of the majority. And quite frankly, what we are seeing is no longer the Constitutional Republic of the United States or any semblance of democracy in the traditional use of the word where the people are represented. This is the tyranny of the majority of special interest and political ideologues who control every institution and are engaging in lawless government to persecute their citizens and to target them and decide who lives and dies and to decide who will be slaves to the elites and who will die because have they you, stand have, against it. Have you been watching any of the, uh, there's about five or six very good Australian senators. They've had Pfizer representatives this week in front of them uh, for questioning and uh, what they've got out of Pfizer. And then these, these people are, well, they're more than evasive. Pfizer are more than evasive in the Australian uh, committee uh, hearings. But they've admitted that um, the Pfizer employees in Australia had, a, had an untested special batch of vaccine sent to them for, for just for the Pfizer employees use, which it wasn't the, wasn't the same. Yes, out to the I, I saw that. It, it, it is, the, you're right. People like us who have a conscience and who care about humanity and life have no words to describe this evil because it is so designed. It's, it's as if the people designing it are absolute soulless. They have no conscience. They are the extreme malignant sociopaths. And, and it is only the people with the courage to stand against evil. And that's little people and that's people who have a platform like you have, like I've had, like Headley has had. And it's people who have bigger platforms than we do. But it's the combination of all of us saying no more, we will speak against evil. Because Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best in World War II, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. And no. he died for standing against the evil of the Nazi regime. And maybe we die, but we stand before God on judgment day, having done what we were called to do in a time like this. Well, if, if we have to sort of end on a, I want to be uh, sort of positive. Um, as you know, part of my uh, long time ago, university degree was in behavior. And, you know, humans, we've been on this planet for a long time and we've evolved and our behaviors evolved to maximize our chance of survival. Now, I have to believe and I'd like your listeners to believe that the good will beat evil because yes. we've been on the planet long enough now that if, if, if evil beat good, most people would have to be evil on this world and, and most people are still good. So that means that good is the winning strategy. We will win. You are, that is beautifully said. And I firmly believe that while we may not see it, God is in control and God does not tolerate evil. Judgment will occur. And we do our part as we're called to do 
to stand against it. I'm honored to have you today. I'm honored to be working with Hedley Reese and Dr. Yeadon and all of our colleagues from overseas. And we will keep the pressure on. And this is your platform whenever you'd like to bring something to the audience. And we will help promote all that you're doing. And let me just close with this comment. Calling us a conspiracy theorist is a propaganda tool and part of the lies and deception. It is designed to weaken us. And we know they do have a conspiracy. It is not a theory. And we're going to continue to call it out. So thank you for ending on the positive note. Good does prevail in the long run. And we're here to help that happen. Thank you both. Thank you for having me. We'll be back again with another Whistleblower Report. Check all of the shows on www.whistleblowerreports.org. Share it on your social media networks. Donate to support Truth for Health public charity so that we can continue the fight and continue our legal defense grants to help people preserve their freedom. This is Dr. Lee for America. We will be back again. Thank you for joining us today.